0: Well, this morning's text hits on the difference between the god that most Americans worship and the god of the Bible. Now, if you read surveys and if you talk to people around town about God and about the gospel, what you'll find is most people still believe in God. Most people still believe in a heaven and most people still believe in a hell, especially around a place like this here in Greenwood. But the god that they look at is rather distant and not involved in their everyday life. And the heaven that they long to go to, you enter by being a good person and not through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And the goal of life, if you would explore it enough in their hearts, you would find the goal in life is usually to feel good about yourself. And so religion begins to take this kind of therapeutic place in our life where religion helps us feel good. We go to church to help us feel good and we read the Bible to help us feel good. And if we do enough good works along the way, since we're such good people, we can get to heaven. Now, The psalm we're going to read this morning has brought great comfort to God's people for many years, and yet at the same time, while it does help us to rest comfortably in the intimate relationship we have with our God, it also turns on our heads the modern and American notion of a God who is distant, who is only there on occasion when we need Him to help us feel better. And so we read Psalm 139 this morning, asking on one hand, would he draw us into him so that we might have a close and intimate relationship with him? And on the other hand, would he correct us of this common American religion that you can find many places on the streets of a God who is distant, who, as the old song says, is watching us from a distance? Let's read together Psalm 139. David writes, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. And if I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say surely the darkness shall cover me and the light around me be night, even darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there were none of them. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Men of blood, depart from me. What we have in these words is a look into a healthy relationship with the God of the Bible. We have a glimpse into his overwhelmingly wise lordship and also a look at the zealous loyalty that that ought to inspire in us. And so we will look at this psalm over two weeks. This week we'll look at the first three sections which outline and marvel at God's overwhelming lordship over us, his people. And then, next week, we plan to look at the fourth section, which takes a lot of work and uses some words that are kind of confusing to us a lot of times. Uh, The last section just outlines the zealous loyalty That God's lordship calls from us. So we have a great picture of his lordship over us and then we have the zealous loyalty that that lordship calls from us. The psalm divides neatly into four sections like that, each of them six verses, the first three doing the first one and the last one which we'll look at next week doing the next one. So let's look at those first three sections this week in order which picture for us how incredible a lord he is to his people. Verses 1 through 6, the first section, marvel at God's thorough and intimate knowledge of his people. The first verse acts as kind of a heading, Lord, you have searched me and known me. This is a God who knows all of his people, a Lord who is not ignorant of or distant from his people, but knows each of us personally. And the verses that follow point out many things. I'll point out just two of them here first. First, how active his knowledge is of us. He doesn't just have a lot of information about his people in an archive somewhere that he could go and look at if we want to. Kind of like all of us have access to the public library, right? But very few of the volumes in the public library have we actually read, right? This is not how God's knowledge of us works. No, it says in two different places. First in verse 1 that he has searched us. And then in verse 3, that he searches out our path and our lying down. So his knowledge of us is not passive, it is active. He takes an active interest in your life, where you go, where you come from, what you do, the steps that you take. He is interested in all of these things because he is interested in you as Lord of your life. This is somewhat like the difference between if you're on Facebook or if you're on Instagram, someone who follows you on Facebook or Instagram and thus has access to all of your stuff, right? You put a picture on there, they can see it, right? The difference between that person who just has access to all the information versus the person who stayed up until three in the morning last night going through all of your pictures that you have on Facebook. Now that's different, isn't it? That's a person who is very interested in your life. And the Lord, in a similar way, doesn't just have access to everything that can be known about you. He is interested and searches out everything that can be known about you. This is also like the car enthusiast who buys a 1960s Mustang and pulls it into his garage and goes in and takes his other car and puts it out in the driveway in the sun to weather the elements because now his Mustang is there in the garage. And he knows a lot about cars, but he doesn't just have this car and have access to it. No, three times a week he drives it to make sure that it's idling just right and handling just the way that he wants it to handle. And once a week he gets under the hood and he tweaks every little part, measures every stick and thing that you can pull out of there, makes sure everything is just right. He searches out as much knowledge as he can get of this car because he's interested in the car. So this is a guy that you're over at his garage and you ask him, hey, how much uh, air pressure do you put in the back tires? And he doesn't go look it up in the book. No, he tells you, no, you're supposed to do 38. I've been doing 38 and a half lately because I feel like it handles a little better, but I might go back down to 38, right? This is someone who searches out thorough knowledge of this car that he is very interested in. And the Lord, in the same way, doesn't have to go to the archive if he has a question about you. No, he searches out your path, he knows you well, and he takes an active interest in all of your doings. Verses 2 and 3 tell us a few of the things that he is interested in. Where we go, where we stand, where we lie down, he says, you know when I sit down, you know when I rise up, you discern my thoughts, you search out my path, you're acquainted with all my ways, where you go, the steps you take, the thoughts you think, he is interested in them and he is watching them with his eye upon you. I don't know about you, I may be the only one, but when I watch uh, crime dramas, like courtroom dramas on TV, I always get really nervous because they ask the person in the stand questions like, where were you on the night of February 6th? And I often think to myself, I may be the only one, I have no idea where I was. On February 6th. I guess I'm not the only one, right? Does it make you nervous as it makes me? I don't know what I was doing this February 6th. Maybe I could look it up on my calendar and find it out. Maybe I could go back to my journal and figure out what I was up to. But if you asked me, I just wouldn't know. But there is one who knows where each of us were on February 6th. I can't even remember what day of the week that was. But the Lord watches so closely and keeps such an accurate record of his people that he knows just where you were and just what you were doing at every point in every day. He knows all of the steps that we take. He knows just how many steps you took yesterday. He knows when you stand up and how much time you were spending sitting down and how much time you were standing up. And some of us have seen that there is great value in that knowledge So much value that we are willing to invest money in wristbands that count the number of steps we take every day, right? And get apps in our phone that we can search through the data and read, you have taken 6,981 steps today. We're interested in this because it helps us to care for our bodies, make sure we're taking enough steps, make sure we're doing all the things that we are supposed to be doing. Well, the Lord knows that you took 6,981 steps yesterday. And more than that, he knows how many of those steps were real steps and how many of them were just you jiggling your wrist because you were nervous and got one more step counted in on your Fitbit, right? And he knows where all of the steps were and could trace out your path and knows if one foot was a little asymmetrical and pointed out from the other. He knows everything that there could be known about us. And he promises by oath to use all of this knowledge for our good when you are sifting through the app on your phone and seeing, okay, on average, I'm taking a hundred more steps than I was last month, you are searching out just a fraction of the knowledge that God searches out about you and knows about you in every instance. Some of you have placed great value on a scan like an X-ray or an MRI so that you can have accurate knowledge of what's going on in a certain part of your body. And so that a doctor with expertise can look at that and know just what is going on so that your body can be cared for. When there is one who is in heaven who needs no MRI machine to see inside your shoulder and know just what is going on. There is one who was watching the doctor read the MRI from his throne in heaven. And I wonder if in heaven he had a thousand different readings about your body that he just had in front of him as he looked down upon that doctor and said, okay, in 10 seconds he's going to get it. Ten, nine, just counts down. Ah, he got it. Now the doctor knows what is wrong with his shoulder. This is the intimate and thorough knowledge, Christian, that your Lord carries and keeps an interest in when it comes to your body and what you are doing. Verse 4 tells us another thing, that even before you say a word, he knows what it is. Some of us, guys who do what I do for a living, will actually pay, I don't do this, but some of them pay good money uh, to have someone type up every word that they have preached so that after they're done preaching, they have a full manuscript that they could easily turn into a book for what they are doing. And what they want is an accurate record of every word that they have said. If you go into a court, the court is going to keep an accurate record of every word that is said in that courtroom because it is important to know what was really said. And David says here of the Lord that he knows what the words are before you even say them. You're going to walk out of this door and you're going to say something to somebody on your way out. And whatever you say, the Lord already knows what it is that you're going to say. His knowledge of you is that thorough and that intimate and he takes that great of an interest in the lives of his people. Verse 5 says that he hems us in behind and before and lays his hand or even his palm upon us. This is imagery of just being surrounded as if he had wrapped us up in his arms, as if everywhere we went the palm of his head was over us, like the ultimate helicopter parent on the playground that just won't let his kid go anywhere without their hands, like right on her. But the Lord says, I am like this with my people. I take this much of an interest in where my people are going and what they are doing. And the way, David feels about this is incredible. Verse six, he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it, right? So this is not a man who is creeped out by how much God knows about him. This is a man who embraces and marvels at how much God knows about him. Now, that means something in an era when most of us are aware that there are people out there tracking information about us, and we don't exactly trust who those people are, right? We wonder about these big data companies that track our location and our phone and what they're doing with that information. We wonder what the NSA might be up to. Uh, The New York Times ran a story about a year ago, well, longer than that, early in the pandemic when China had their nation on lockdown, They ran a story about a man who worked as a chef in China, and the stay-at-home order came out in China. He stayed in his home like everybody else did, and he went out to his garden to pick some vegetables for supper that night. So there he is in his backyard in his garden, and his phone buzzed, and he looked at his phone, and he received a message from the government telling him to go back inside. Uh, What had happened was a facial recognition camera far off in the distance caught his face, recognized him, looked him up, found his phone number, and sent him a text message telling him to go back inside. And the gist of the story was you don't want that happening here in the States, right? That, that's a little too big brothery for us, isn't it? Now that sets into contrast how David feels about how much God knows about him, right? Now, if the government knew that much about you, and knew where you were all the time, I think it would creep you out, it would creep me out, right? If the government knew everything that you have ever searched on the internet, and maybe they do, I don't know, that thought kind of creeps us out a little bit. But there is one who knows more than Facebook knows about you, and more than the NSA knows about you, and more than Apple or Google know about you, and he has promised by covenant oath to use every bit of his knowledge about you for the good of his people. This is a God that we don't have to be worried about how much He knows about us. This is a God that we can look at that and say, such knowledge is so wonderful. It is too wonderful for me. It is so high, I cannot attain it because this is a God who is worthy of knowing everything about us. Let's move to the second section. The second section marvels at God's inescapable presence. This is another way that God shows his lordship over his people. Verse 7 kind of functions as a heading. It says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? Right? The basic idea no matter where I go, you're going to follow me there. And then he proceeds to think of all sorts of fantastic places that he might theoretically try to go to in vain, trying to flee from the Lord. He could go up into the sky on the wings of the morning. He could go down into the depths of the ocean. He could go all the way up to heaven, all the way down to hell, and all the way back. And the whole time, God's presence would follow him because God follows his people in this sort of way. These verses are often used to prove that God is always everywhere, what we often call God's omnipresence. And they do demonstrate that God is always everywhere. But they're getting at something a little more pointed than that as well. You see, the Bible talks about God's presence in a few different ways. It does say in many places that God is always everywhere. You can't get away from him. But there are also places where it talks about God's very special presence with and among his people. About the fact that for a Christian, God dwells inside of us in a way that He doesn't dwell in other places. And that when we are gathered as a church, He is here among us and with us in a special way even beyond the way that he will be here this afternoon when we are all gone. Now, he's always everywhere, but he also rests his special presence in and among his people to care for his people and to be with us, to comfort us, and to follow us. And that special presence that we have a taste of, that we have access to, that is what David is getting at here. We see that in verse 10 where he says, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So this isn't just God is always everywhere. This is wherever I go, you especially go with me, and I cannot get away from your presence following me everywhere that I go. So this is the inescapable presence of God for his people. And that means at least two things for us in our everyday lives. Uh, It means first that God is with you, Christian, no matter how you feel, whether you feel like he is with you or not, he is with you. And it means that God is with us whether we are doing right or whether we are doing wrong. I'll take those one at a time. God is with us even if we don't feel like he is with us. One of the most liberating messages of the Christian life is that your feelings are not in charge. If you wake up in the morning and you feel like a million bucks, you are not more valuable because you feel like a million bucks. And that's good news. Because three hours later, when you feel like trash, you are not trash. Because you feel like trash, right? Your feelings no longer have any authority over who you are, how valuable you are, what is going on in the world. We have a new authority, the voice of God speaking to us through his word. So all these topsy-turvy feelings that torture us and take us all these different directions, we can take that ride, but it's not an authoritative ride. No, the truth comes from God's word. Now that's a freeing message. And one thing that it means is that when you sit down in the morning with your Bible open, And you seek the Lord and you say to him honestly, God, I do not feel like you are close right now. Well, that's a true statement. You don't feel like he is close right now. You can tell him that. But his response is, I'm there anyway. God is with you all the time, Christian. He says, there is no place you could go to escape from my presence. There is no depths that you could feel as if I weren't there that would suddenly make me leave you because ah oh, that person doesn't feel like I'm there so I'm going to leave. He says that's not how I work. I follow my people everywhere that they go and so even if you don't feel like God is with you even if you're sitting in the pew right now thinking oh this is a dry morning for me I do not feel God's presence Christian He is with you and He is with us right now. Second thing it means is that God is with you even when you're doing wrong. And that's a scary thought. Some of us have places we go where we trick ourselves into thinking we're alone and then we try to get away with that one sin that we don't want anybody to know about, with uh, taking that one cigarette that we don't want anybody in our lives to know about, or, or cheating on our diet that we promised that we weren't going to cheat on, but we're alone here, and so it's okay, right? Or looking at that thing on the internet that we shouldn't be looking at, but here I've convinced myself I'm alone, and so I feel comfortable doing that thing. Some of us have places we try to go to to flee from the presence of God so that we can indulge in sin and then step back into our lives with accountability and other people in our lives. And the Lord says here, there is nowhere you can go to flee from God's presence. If you have a place like that, I want you to imagine that now. Is there a place you go to be alone so that you can indulge in some sin? What's what's around you there? What kind of objects are there? What kind of sounds do you hear in that place? I want you to know, in that very place, God's presence is with you. You cannot escape from his presence. And the next time you are there, I hope you will remember these words, verses 7 through 12. Where shall I go to flee from your presence? So if the first section marvels at God's intimate and thorough knowledge of his people, and the second section marvels at his inescapable presence with his people, The third section marvels at the intricate craftsmanship God shows in our bodies, his intricate craftsmanship in the way he made our bodies. This section starts out again in verse 13 with a kind of a heading statement, a summary statement. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. He is the one who fashioned you together when you were in the womb of your mother. And what great wisdom he shows in the way that he has made you. You have never seen in all of your life, of all of the wonders you have seen God made, all the natural wonders, of all the things you have seen people make, like buildings and cars and pulpits and phones, and all the exquisite craftsmanship you have seen, you have never seen craftsmanship like the human body, which God has been pleased to dwell your spirit within. You have never seen craftsmanship like the human body. Your eyes have never seen anything more exquisite than they themselves are except for the other people that you have seen this is the level of detail that God puts in your body and we could I could spend many many sermons just going through the wonders of the human body every time you go to the doctor you're probably amazed you see an x-ray and you think what well, what is this thing that God made I'll just give you one thing that we can marvel at this morning in our bodies and and that is that is the knee uh, if you have ever had fully functioning knees, some people, their knees have never worked. Some of you, your knees used to work and they don't anymore. Some of you, they work fine and you're glad for that. If they've ever worked, just marvel with me at what the Lord did in your mother's womb to you. When you were 12 weeks old, 12 weeks after you were conceived, you had what doctors call limb buds, four of them, right? Two that would become your arms, two that would become your legs. Uh, I saw a sonogram of one of my daughters in this stage once and she looked like a gummy bear. So just imagine a little gummy bear with with wiggly little limbs or maybe like a teddy gram, like that kind of thing. It's about what you look like. Little buds coming out of there. And each of those buds had one big, well, not big, but one bone in it that went the whole length of the thing, right? And this magical thing happens at 12 weeks after conception. That bone just somehow knows to split into two, forming your upper leg and lower leg. And then all of the cells just seem to know what to do to come into place. Some of them start to form ligaments. Some of them start to form tendons. Some of them form muscles. And they form the same type of muscles and ligaments and tendons in every person. Wonderfully. Doctors call this self-assembly. The knee just self-assembles. It just all comes together like this. And the thing that they say is we, we don't know how it self-assembles. It, it just does. It's just a mystery of medicine. What you wind up with is these two bones that come together in sort of a ball socket kind of way, but I think it's a little different than that, and two either ligaments or tendons that function like rubber bands, one going like this in the knee and the other one going like that. You get those two bones and those two ligaments or tendons together like that, and now the thing can bend back and forth without sliding out of socket. If just one of those things is not made correctly, your knee doesn't work. We look at that, and we marvel, and we say, we don't know how the human knee assembles itself like that. Except we do. In fact, we already read it in verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. And so what should we do? We should do verse 14. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. All of the wisdom of modern medicine, and we cannot figure out how people are assembled in the womb. What a miracle God does as he fashions us together. Amazing even beyond that is that at that point, God had already written your whole life story. It says in verse 16, starting in the second line, In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. All right, we're trying to figure out how the knee comes together. God says, I know how many times he's going to bend those knees throughout his whole lifetime. I don't know how many days he's going to live. I know exactly the date of his death. Or I know that this one is going to live until I send my son to return for them. He knows all of the number of our days before we are even fully made in the womb. This is the one who has full and complete lordship over his people. Now that is overwhelming to stand in front of in front of a God who knows you that thoroughly and follows you everywhere you go with his presence and made you that intricately in the womb the only way to respond to this is the way that David does in verses 17 and 18. How precious are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. This is a man who is overwhelmed at the incredible lordship that God shows over his people. And this is how our hearts ought to feel right now as well. When we come face to face with a God like this, we should say, this one is the sovereign Lord. This is not some faraway guy in the sky that I can go to when I need to feel better and then step away from when I want to live my life and be successful. This, this is not some sort of distant God. This is not somebody I just go to for therapy. No, this is the sovereign Lord of the universe. And I hope what you can see here is that when a God knows you this thoroughly And when he follows his people around this closely, and when he made you that intricately, when a sovereign Lord like that requires full loyalty from his people, I hope you can see that he is worthy of it. When he says, I require all of your worship and all of your obedience, I hope you can see that he is worthy to say things like that the bar in the Bible is set high, right? The bar for human humankind, what we are supposed to do is set high. Why is it set so high? Because this God is worthy of a bar that high. Can you see in these three sections the answer to the question, who is God to tell me what to do with my body? Who is he? He is the Lord of the universe. He is the one who fashioned your body in intricate love for you. He is the one who follows you everywhere you go. And so we can't go further if I don't point out how big a deal our every sin against him is. Can we bear to have betrayed him once when he knows us this well and made us this intricately and follows us that closely? Can we bear to know that we have betrayed him even one time? No, how grand, how big a deal is our every sin and betrayal against him. And the reason I want you to see that is so that we can see just how greatly in need of mercy we are. We are ones who go before him in need of his grace, in need of his mercy, because this great God, every sin we have ever committed, we committed against that God, against the sovereign God of the universe. And yet our God sits in his throne in heaven, ready to receive the death of his son, As full payment for all of our sin. Now, we said earlier, we saw earlier, that all the days in the book are already written for us, right? God knows every sin we have ever committed, He also knows every sin we will ever commit, right? And what he is willing to do from his throne in heaven is hold that book open and take his stamp that says paid and just mark it on every single sin we have ever committed. And every sin we will commit in 2028, paid, paid, paid for, paid for. Every sin we will commit in 2032, paid for, paid for, paid for, paid for. He is willing to receive the death of his son as full payment for all of your sin, past, present, and future. This is an overwhelmingly good God who is worthy of your faith and worthy of your trust. So what I call you to do is to place your faith and your trust fully and completely in Him. He would rejoice to grant you forgiveness this morning if you have not received it already. So place your trust in Him. Place your faith in Him. Would you turn from sin and follow Him in loyalty? Next week, we continue on in the last section, which will take quite a bit of effort. The last section is going to point out for us just how zealous the loyalty is that God calls from his people. Now, a God who is willing to save people that greatly, he's worthy of loyalty, isn't he? What does that loyalty look like? We have a picture of that in the last section. We will look at that next week. For now, let's pray and let's ask the Lord to give us a great and breathless view of him through the psalm.